The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org slash give. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. We rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father. Or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Dad. That's my dad. I'm Brian Salter, one of the pastors here, and um, it is an honor to bring now to you the, the word heard, the word that goes forth in an audible sermon. We've seen the visible sermon, and now God comes to encourage our hearts with his word. The text you just heard, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. To have our eyes opened, illumined by faith is an incredible gift. And I'm going to pray God will do that right now. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus. That you would unstop our ears, that we might hear with faith. Father, we pray that our hearts would be a fertile land for your word to be placed so that it bears fruit. For any and all among us who may have a heart that feels hard and stony, would you now by your spirit soften it and give them eyes to see, ears to hear? Would you make all of our hearts soft and fertile so that that which you have said to us today, we would believe it. And because we believe it, we would behave differently. We ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a basic uh, wise principle in Bible study, and that's to note repetition. In this particular passage, I want to point out to you the repetition that gives, us away, that gives away the theme of the text. If you look in verse 17, it says, The 72 return with joy. You look in verse 20, it says, do not rejoice, and then it says, but rejoice. 
In verse 21, in the same hour, he rejoiced, speaking of Jesus. And then it ends with, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. That's a state of joy to be blessed. And so the emphasis of the text is joy. Jesus' joy and our joy as his disciples. You know, our world is asking questions like was asked in a recent New York Times article. Are we living in a post-happy world? It's a sad question. The writer Laura Holson says, joy, it seems, is everywhere these days in the marketing. It's used to sell boxes at Ikea. This brings you joy, quote. It's included in ads for drinks at McDonald's. T-shirts tout joy as an act of resistance. A number of books are being published each year, the writer says, devoted to joyful living, including marriage and productivity. But she asks this question, if joy is everywhere, why is happiness so elusive? Douglas Abrams, the author of the book of joy, she says, said, in an age of despair, choosing joy is a revolutionary act. What I would note about this article is she wrote all that in 2019. Imagine if she wrote it now. It might even be darker, it seems. These times are full of anger and despair, and maybe you are asking the question, is this a post-happy world? Is there a way for anyone to find what we would call joy? Our passage this morning shows that Jesus alone brings us joy, that joy comes in a relationship with Jesus, and it is not a matter of revolution, it is a matter of revelation. That's what we're going to see this morning. First, as disciples participating in his kingdom mission, our joy is to be rooted in God's gracious salvation. That is to be the root of our joy. Before we hear that point, we have to see how the disciples come back. Verse 17, the 72 return with joy. They're sent out, and suddenly in verse 17, they come back. And they are elated. They are returning from a mission with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They have gone out. They have represented Jesus. They have invoked his name, and they have seen power over the enemy. They have enjoyed, as it were, ministry success. They've had a good mission trip. They come back with a, a really good report. They're really excited about the spiritual power they experienced. And before we jump from their joy to Jesus' correction of their joy, I think it's important to hear what Jesus says to them initially as they're talking about these demons. Luke has had an emphasis in chapters 9 and 10 about the mission of Jesus and the reality of evil. In Luke 9, 1, the disciples, the 12, are sent out. Remember the description in Luke 9, 1. It says, And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And so they went out. Verse 10 says, when they, they came back and reported all they had done, likely another time of returning with a level of mission success. But if you remember in chapter 9, as the, the chapter goes on in verses 39 through 40, when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a, a man with his only son who's possessed by a demon. 
And he says, behold, a spirit seizes him. He suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it shatters him. It'll hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. Another encounter with demons and evil, this time without success. Then you may remember them saying in verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Jesus said, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. And then you come to this text. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Luke has a really clear emphasis here. The mission of Jesus and the kingdom is very, very clear to Luke. The mission is to defeat Satan. As 1 John says, to destroy the works of the devil. The mission is to break the power of evil and win a decisive victory that will open up the way to God's new creation in which evil and sin and death will be banished for the sake of his people and his glory. That's the mission. Lift high the cross, says thy kingdom come, that earth's despair may cease. We, we bring that mission to the world, seeking as much as God allows us to, to have the ceasing of earth's despair around us in the name of Jesus. And so Jesus makes clear to them that indeed we are in a battle. He says to them in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's his response to them. It's a very curious response. It could mean one of two things, and to be honest, I have no idea which it is. We're going to have to ask Jesus later. He could be saying to them an affirmation of the reality of evil that I, pre-incarnate, saw Satan fall from heaven. I saw the reality of the battle when he fell from heaven. You're right. Our mission is against evil and Satan. He also could have had a revelation, as was typical for prophets. While the disciples were out ministering, he could have had a revelation that showed Satan's defeat happening through the disciples. And that the falling like lightning wasn't a matter of brightness, it was a matter of suddenness. That when they're going out in his name, Satan's power is more and more and more weakening and being defeated. And actually, we don't know which of those it is, but here is what we know for sure. Satan's power has been broken by Jesus and will definitively and decisively one day be done forever. You see, Jesus, when he came in his incarnation, began to strike Satan and defeat him. The temptation when he was faithful in the temptations of Satan. He dealt another fatal blow until on the cross in Colossians 2.15, Paul says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame and triumphed over them in him on the cross. At the cross, Jesus says to Satan, lay down your weapons, surrender you belong to me and my rule. And he chains him as king through his resurrection. And we know that one day there will be a final blow, a final full defeat of Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 through 12 says this. Listen to this. Imagine this for you or if you're in him. 
And I heard a loud voice saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. The devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. I saw Satan fall like lightning. Jesus is telling the disciples, the battle's real, but the battle's ours. And how are we to live between now and that decisive victory? He says in verse 19, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, alluding to the promise in the garden that we would crush the serpent's head. He says, Over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus here is not promising the disciples, he's not promising us immunity from the harm of sin and evil, but he is saying, Sin and evil will never have the final word over you. So go in peace. So after establishing that, and I think it's really important to establish the the nature of our mission, the reality of evil, the kingdom of light versus the kingdom of darkness, now he corrects them. Remember, they return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. In verse 20, nevertheless, nevertheless, yes, that kingdom's happening. We have power. This is a matter of authority. This is a matter of battle. Nevertheless. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Our ultimate joy is to be in God's gracious salvation. Jesus corrects these successful disciples and says, let me tell you the matter that matters most, that I know you that you know me, that you belong to me, that I've written your personal name in the Lamb's book of life. That is to be our ultimate joy. And when the Bible speaks of the Lamb's book of life, it does it in a very sobering fashion. That after being sobered and realizing by faith If he's given you faith to know, faith to believe, that your name's there, that you'll rejoice. Because here's what the Bible says in Revelation 20, 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter into the presence of Jesus nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Well, I would imagine you could say, like me, I'm unclean. I've done what's detestable. I have. I've done what's false. I have. So how could my name possibly, how could I have hope to enter the presence of eternal life? Revelation 21, 27. The only ones who will enter are those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. How do you get your name there? You have faith not in what you do, 
but in what he's done for you. And he's opened your eyes to see. He's, he's raised you from the dead of sin. He's changed your heart and your will so that you would want him. And he writes your name by your personal name in that book that allows you entry forever without sin, without death, without evil. Now, what should happen at this moment in the sermon, for those of us who realize the truth of that, really should resemble what happened at Neyland Stadium last night. And Tennessee fans, I have now thrown you a bone, so you're welcome. There was utter jubilation and exultation for a victory. And I wonder when we hear yeah, my name's written in the book of life. If that's sort of the casual response versus amazing. He knows me by name. He came for me. He died for me. He wrote my name. And when I get there, I'll see my name and he'll know me and say, come on in, come into the rest that I've provided for you. And what Jesus is saying, that should be our ultimate joy. But let me start the confession. The last three years have been some of the most joyless years of my life. Why? I think through studying this text, I realized I was living by sight, not by faith. That no matter what the circumstances are, He knows me. And it has nothing to do with me. And because he started the relationship, I can't end it. It's forever. If that really is my ultimate joy, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I can endure what? Anything. So the issue of joylessness is it's misplaced in things that were not meant to be ultimate. Cyprian the bishop of the church at Carthage in the third century wrote a remarkable letter to his young friend Donatus. And this is what he wrote. I love this. It's a bad world, Donatus. An incredibly bad world. I'll pause. May Cyprian correct all of us of our chronological arrogance that we might think this is the worst the world's ever been. Let's all take a deep breath and rest. From the third century on, it's been a what? A bad world. An incredibly bad world of sin and misery, Cyprian says. But I've discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They've found a joy. They're despised and persecuted, but they don't care. They have overcome the world. The people, Donatus, are the Christians. And I am one of them. Is that your joy? Is that your ultimate joy? Jesus calls us to such. And then, secondly, as disciples of Jesus participating in his kingdom mission, our joy is to be rooted in God's sovereign revelation. 
After telling the disciples to rejoice in verse 21, Jesus rejoices. In that same hour, so in great proximity to his telling them how to rejoice, he just rejoices in their midst and prays. Now, how is this instructive for us? We should love what God loves and hate what God hates. So if Jesus rejoices in something, we should share that joy, right? Here's how he rejoices. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The word for Jesus rejoicing is actually like a a mega rejoicing word. He is really, really full of joy. Why? He's full of joy because of the Father's methodology. He is rejoicing in this. God has not chosen the wise and the understanding and the influential based on the merits they may bring. But no, he has chosen, quote, he says, to reveal to little children. That word children is used, the particular Greek word used three times in the New Testament. One is a parallel of the same account and the other's in a different location. And it is not the word for like little toddlers. It is the word for infants, babies. Jesus is rejoicing that the Father reveals himself to those who are like Alice, who we saw this morning. Alice brings her need, her dependence. That's what infants do. They don't bring their merit. They don't bring their intelligence. They don't bring their resume and record. Infants are completely dependent. And Jesus says, I rejoice that that's who our Father reveals himself to. People that are needy. People who feel at home in the nursery. You and I should. We should feel at home in the nursery going, these are my people. This is what I'm really like. Stinky, dependent, desperate, needing provision, looking for someone to come help me. God says when you get there, that's who he reveals himself to. A.W. Tozer in his work, The Pursuit of God, says, Now, as always, God discloses himself to babies and hides himself in thick darkness from the wise and the prudent. We must simplify our approach to him. We must put away all efforts to impress and come with the guileless candor of a child. This morning, are you willing to put away all your efforts to impress God and just come to him as a baby? That's what Jesus rejoices in. Jesus is exulting in people that do that, in the Father who does that. And further, he says in verse 22, that all these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And that shows they have this really unique, intimate relationship from before all time, Father and Son, mutually loving and enjoying each other forever. 
And you think, well, that's good, Jesus. Why would you tell us that? Because you said no one knows the Father but you and the Son. No one knows the Son but the Father. So how's that hope for us? Thankfully, he kept talking and praying. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Hey, little babies. You get in on the intimacy of that father-son relationship. (laughs) Not because of anything you do. Because of his gracious choice of you. He does not choose the choice. He chooses the little children who are desperate. The father works contrary to conventional expectations. I, I... I see Jesus sharing his earthly mother's joy who at the Magnificat, if you'll remember, herself rejoiced. Why? Because God brings down the proud and exalts the humble. That's our Jesus. He he exalts in the Father's methodology in the sovereign revelation and choice of God of the little and the lowly. But last, as Jesus' disciples participate in his kingdom mission, our joy is to be rooted in God's blessed revelation. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, I wonder what they look like, you know, after seeing Jesus pray like with perfect joy. And then he turns to talk to them. I just wonder if they're like, wow, like we get his words and he just talked to the Father like that. And he just says to them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. So rejoice. It's a state of blessing that your eyes have been opened that you see. Therefore, I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Why should we be in a state of joy? We belong to Jesus. He knows us, and he has given us the privilege of seeing and hearing. We, we know by faith. Why? Because it was a gift. We've received the gift. And we should exalt and rejoice. I see. I know what's true. I I now have, have left living only according to the darkness of sin. I now live in the light of what is true. What a blessing. And I didn't do anything to receive it. He says that's blessed revelation. English author H.G. Wells It's famous for science fiction novels like The Time Machine or The Invisible Man, The War of the Worlds. But he once wrote a short story called The Country of the Blind. Interestingly, Wells was actually hostile to Christianity. And his work ends up being a profound parable about what it means to be a Christian and live in a world where people see things differently. The irony of Wells' work is that He wrote a story called The Country of the Blind, and he couldn't see that he was one of them. But here's the story. It's the story of a mountain guide in South America leading an expedition in the Andes. And there's snow everywhere. And when the guide accidentally steps into a snow-covered hole that's one of those big rifts with no apparent bottom... The guide begins to tumble for miles and miles and miles until he finally lands in a beautiful valley where the people looked like all the other people he'd ever met with one exception. For 14 generations, not one in the valley had sight. Everybody was blind. It was the country of the blind. 
Not only did they not have eyes, they had no frame of reference about anything referred to as seeing. The man then took it as his mission to fill everybody in on the truth, telling them the way things really were. He tried to tell them about the sky and how beautiful it was, but they had come to believe somehow they lived in a cavern with a big stone ceiling. And the more he described the world to them, the more they thought he was crazy and absolutely insane. And in the end, their only hope to live with him in community, their only solution was to remove his eyes and make him blind. I want to tell you, based on that story, that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, our eyes have been opened, our ears have been unstopped. We can see. We can see truth in all its beauty. And yet we live, sadly, in the country of the blind. And they're blind and they're also dying. Our ability to see should make us the most humble, joyful people in the world. And sadly, we are marked too often as just angry against those people that can't see. We should be realistic and compassionate and prayerful because of the gift of faith. We should be realistic in this world. Jesus warned us of the hostility we would face just as he had in a blind world. The world will want to remove our eyes of faith. Of course they will. We make no sense to them. We look crazy, absolutely insane. They can't see. 2 Corinthians 4 says, Even if our gospel is veiled in verses 3 through 6, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The blind are also dying. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so what are we to do in the country of the blind? Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ us, Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. We point people to Jesus, the main attraction. And we point him there as he is our joy. And we do it how, Paul said, as servants. Not as domineering, not as authoritarians but as joyful servants who have been given eyes to see, and we do it dependently. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We live in the country of the blind, humbly and joyful. Not angry and surprised. Of course the world can't think like the Bible. They're blind. And we go there with realism and compassion. But, but here's the real thing. We go there utterly prayerful and dependent. Because we can't open the eyes. And here, I think, is the challenge for us. 
We like to maybe proclaim a truth far more than we like praying for people to have their eyes opened. We've been asking God to renew us. You can read every historical work on renewal, and this is always the mark of renewal. People who were blind seeing for the first time. Why does that bring renewal? Because nothing will bring fresh joy into community than someone walking in and saying, I was blind and now I see everything just changed. And nothing will mess with us more than that because they don't know our traditions and our rhythms and our little cute things we do. And they'll mess with us with their joy. And that'll bring what? Renewal. So if that's key to renewal, and if we can't open their eyes, we need to start praying. So a very clear application of the sermon. I would call us all to write on a note card those you know that live in the country of the blind, unaware, and dying. Write five names and pray for them every day that God will open their eyes, that they'll see, and that we'll be recipients of their fresh joy. Could we be so courageous to do that? Could we be so compassionate to do that? Blessed are the eyes of those who see. Let us pray that God would open the eyes of those we love. He did it for us. It's our joy. May he do it for many. Please, Lord, in this season of renewal, let us pray. Even here, Lord, on our, in our community, these two zip codes on this mountain, there's so much beauty. And yet, if we're honest, there's so much blindness. Father, you know the people in our community, and so do we, who are blind and dying. Would you create a renewal among us? Would you make us faithful and fervent in prayer? And would you cause a, a, a wave of people who see for the first time? May they see you through us and our joy that we do believe we can find joy in this difficult world. May they see you and us through our humility that we take no credit, no pride in our standing with God. Oh, Father, thank you for giving us eyes to see. Would you give those we love who are blind eyes to see? Remove the blinders. Make us prayerful. Help us proclaim humbly and compassionately. In Christ's name, amen.